Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my captivating co-host, Sunday Mint, and our preternatural guest producer, Rose Burt, who's subbing in for Eric today. Eric's out of... We miss him very much because we love Eric, but we have Rose and she's amazing. And we're very glad to have you, Rose. This season's theme is adopting Elixir. And we're joined today by a special, special guest. I'm really excited for this one from Dockyard, Brian Cartarella. Brian, thank you for coming on the show. Formerly of Dockyard. Formerly of Dockyard. Well, I guess I I still own the company. I just, I left at the end of last year. Right, right. And maybe we'll jump into a little bit of that, but I want to I want to rag on you a little bit to start the show off and, and say, uh, so you emailed me uh, pretty much every single day since February 2019, just, you know, asking to be on the show and finally it ran out of other guests. So, <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. Well, I did email, I did email to ask to be on the show, but it was only once a week. Well, and we're really, really glad you did. But only once a week. That's hilarious. No, he 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 just kind of nudged me. He's like, "Hey, man, I I really want to talk about this subject today, and we're going to get to the subject of our conversation today." But first, why did you want to come on the show, and uh, why are we not talking about Ember? I'll address the second question first. We're not talking about Ember because there really isn't anything to talk about. I mean, if this was a few years ago, I would be very interested to talk about Ember, but I think we can discuss the failings of kind of single page applications as a whole first, which isn't really Ember's kind of failing. It's just that, uh, okay, so I kind of describe as someone who ran a consultancy and had to go in and sell these services to companies, I bought into single page applications because I, I, I think on paper, it made a lot of sense. But when it came down to the cost of single page applications is where a lot of companies started to be lost. So my, my history and kind of the web is a lot of people around my age kind of, they came up through Ruby on Rails. And Rails was, I mean, it was a paradigm shift and really kind of an ideological shift in how web applications were being built. And there's also a cultural shift um, for better or worse. I mean, this is where the whole rock star developer junk started. And I don't know if it started there, but it definitely kind of latched onto it. The value proposition of Rails at the time, the thing that made it so attractive over the offerings at that time, building out your web application in Java or PHP or, or something else, was that they could legitimately go in and defend the position of that we can build this same application half the time for half the cost. And that's how Rails really took off. You had kind of the rise of all these startups and venture capitalists looking to basically get their applications out into the market early to validate their ideas. And if you had a framework and a technology that allow you to get it out faster, that was going to win. And that, that's really how, in my mind, how Rails was so successful. Now, fast forward a decade, and here I was sitting in the room of trying to sell Ember. And again, I won't make this part Ember's fault. This is like the concept of single-page applications. But now I'm having to tell them, like, we can build the same application in twice the time and twice the cost. There is some value of over what the, the interactions and some, kind of the edge case optimizations that single page applications can bring over server rendered applications. Now, especially when you start to find people creating more complexity in jQuery, looking for sanity. And this is where the, the SPA has kind of stepped in and said, hey, you know, let us kind of normalize this space quite a bit. But the return on investment for building out these single page applications really started to not be worth it, except if you were a very, very 
lucrative company, or if you had some very well technically minded people that could take over the application afterwards. Dockyard is still selling Ember services, and I don't want to sink them on it. But I mean, I, I came out publicly probably about two years ago and just said that we weren't, I wasn't in at the time, I directed Dockyard to no longer really go out and sell itself as an Ember consultancy. And it's not really advertising itself that way anymore. But just due to Dockyard's reputation in the Ember space, there's still residual leads that come in from time to time in relationships that exist. So Ember as a technology, I actually think of all the single page application frameworks out there, it's the best techno like technology that's there. Ember's failing in my mind has always been marketing and how it really tried to boil the ocean on Tom's in terms of like they need to own everything. So the the other frameworks, I mean, it's even debatable if the other SPA frameworks are frameworks in the same sense that Ember is. Is React considered an SPA framework? Because it's library. They're always calling it a library. Yeah, it's a rendering engine, essentially. And then there's other pieces out in the React ecosystem that you could piece together to kind of bring this front-end full-stack competency or like like something similar to what Ember has that's like turnkey. In fact, I think it's maybe it's Angular CLI that forked the Ember CLI project. But like the Ember team, they just they want to do everything themselves. And they're a small team. They weren't backed, but they didn't say have the same financial backing that Angular or React did. And so they were constantly falling behind. I think that they had, the, they had the smartest people doing these things and they bit off more than they can chew. And so when you're working in a bleeding edge space where JavaScript client-side applications is, but you're not offering bleeding edge solutions, you're just going to fall farther and farther behind to the point where eventually Ember made its motto that all the best solutions will eventually end up in Ember. And so their, their idea was that, okay, we're going to see what everyone else is doing and then we're going to pick and choose what's going to end up there. And I think that for some people that was that sounded good. And I kind of bought into that marketing as well. When I started to think about it, it's difficult. Yeah, yeah it's, well, it's difficult to go out and sell that as a value proposition to companies, right? Because they're, they're going into the single page application space. So already they're taking on some risk that this is better than server rendered applications. So this this notion that you're going to sell a risk-averse single-page application framework was contradictory. I mean, there's all sorts of different things that that occurred with Ember, but Dockyard, we were doing work for Netflix for two years on their studio applications. So like, there's kind of like two Netflixes. There's Netflix Inc., which is the application you go to for Netflix.com. There's Netflix Studios, which is the entity responsible for all the original content production. So they're the ones that have the studio down in LA. The apps that Dockyard was building for them were all Ember-based. And that relationship came to an end beginning of 2020, Q1, Q2-ish, because they wanted to get rid of Ember. They wanted to move away from Ember. So there are very few really noteworthy names that are still in Ember at this point. Like there's some that are would be more considered like legacy. They've been around for a while. Like LinkedIn is the biggest one, but they also employ almost the entire Ember core team. Well, I, I knew you would have a fascinating take on it. And and I think we all agree that one of the technology commandments is to be language agnostic, which is why we named the podcast Elixir Wizards. But I think that this sort of the first part of your answer, which was moving out as a result of sort of being focused on cost effectiveness for your clients, probably has something to do with why you went into Elixir. 
Not necessarily. I, I think that Elixir has a good story because of Erlang in that area. In the cost efficacy area? You're saying that Elixir is not cost effective? I'm saying that it is, like from a, de- like from like a development velocity and efficiency standpoint, right? Like you can build a lot. Yeah. It might be interesting to, to like rewind a decade or so and kind of like get into, for people who don't know the story, how did you make this transition from Ember to Elixir or was it parallel or did you kind of go after it because of some reason? It wasn't really a transition from Ember to Elixir. I'd say that was more a transition from Ruby to Elixir because we were searching for a different backend solution. So Dockyard started really in the summer of 2009. It had a different name at the time. It was called Dirty Water Development. And then, so I'm from Boston and the the song by the Standells, Love That Dirty Water about the Trails River for the Red, like it's always sung at the Red Sox games. The pipeline in the Gulf blew up. And then like like the Gulf of Mexico was like full of oil. Yeah, deep yeah. So that was like three months after I, I called my consultancy Dirty Water Development. <laughs> and then everyone's like, what is this? Dirty oh. Water Development. They didn't have any context or they were drawing the wrong conclusion. I'm a sailor. I had to find uh, a different name. And I really wanted to call it Shipyard because, you know, hey, we're shipping software. But there's a, you know, there's a beer called Shipyard too. And oh. so they have shipyard.com. And my whole thing is like, I really want the domain names. I think the domain name is important to own as part of the naming process. And I mean, this is this is a little bit of, of a tangent, but docker.com ended up being owned by a naval architect who lived in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And he was selling basically plans for building out barges. He, he was an MIT graduate. I didn't really talk to him at all. But from what I gathered, he was pretty much an independent naval arch- architect that was selling to commercial space. But when I started to... And his website hadn't been updated in about five or six years. So I started to look into him. I tried to contact him on the website. No response. When I started to look into him, it turned out he was like in his late 80s. It's like, uh oh, he may not be around anymore. And so I was trying to find his family to contact him to see if there was an estate that owned the domain name. And this is the only time that's ever worked out for me. I just, after like two or three weeks, I'm like, I have to have this domain name. After two or three weeks, I contacted the GoDaddy like service that will go and try to purchase the domain name for you. And it worked. Like he, I guess he got contacted quite a bit by people looking to purchase the domain name just to squat it and then like sell it. But I guess the message got through that I was a legitimate buyer. And so he was willing to sell it to me. And so that's really where I think that was is there, towards the end of 2009 or beginning of 2010. All that to say, it started as a Ruby and Rails consultancy. And I was of the mind that Rails was kind of over its peak in terms of adoption. I mean, this is where Node started to really eat into a lot of the rail space. I remember being in Boston, and I think that you were organizing the Ruby conference in Boston for a few years. I ran Boston RB, which is the meetup group. And there was a Ruby conference that I ran called Wicked Good Ruby. And that was my first time running a conference. And for those that you know run conference events, I have a lot of sympathy for them because it is a thankless job. <laughs> it is really, really difficult. And you put a lot of money on the line and there's a lot of risk there. I mean, you have, there's something about the developer community that they complain. I was going to say yeah. bitch and whine. I'll say bitch and whine, but they bitch and whine about pricing. And like, 
you go to any other industry conference and the, yeah, the cost of tickets are hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars. And you have people complaining in software that the ticket is like above $50. And I get it. Maybe you can't afford it. But at the same time, the person running the conference can't go into massive debt. I mean, it's just, you're not going to have a conference if that happens. That's why like the stuff that happened with, with Jim for ElixirConf this year, with everyone complaining about, not everyone, but there were some people that were complaining about the nature of how he was releasing the videos, I thought was just horseshit. It was like, you know, Jim has put himself out there. He's the one that puts these conferences together. It's his money that's on the line. It's, you know, his well-being that's on the line. He's got to make it back somehow or else they're not going to be an electric cop. It's a, it's a lot of work just from having seen Jim at work. And I really appreciate you chiming in on that because he puts in a ton of work. He loves the community. He means nothing but but love and generosity to me. He's been such a great person in the community. So, yeah. I mean, part of that too is messaging. Like people can understand, I think, especially on the internet, we're not face-to-face with people. Sometimes it's easier for you to start diving into conspiracy theory about, you know, like, oh, Jim's going to make a ton of money off these videos. Like, no, no. He'll, he'll be lucky if he makes his money back. Yeah, yeah. And developers are unforgiving. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said about like empathy over the internet and like teams even who work remotely and who don't see each other every day or like in person. There's just like a little bit of a disconnect. So that's something we definitely saw a lot in 2020 more than any other time and we have to work through. Dockyard went fully remote in 2016. And so we were pretty prepared for this. And it was it was a smooth transition for Dockyard. It would have been helpful for Dockyard to kind of share his experiences early on and you know how it managed certain aspects, especially around like HR type stuff and team building and community. I was of the mind that Rails had kind of peaked in terms of being like quote unquote cool around like 2010, 2011. That's early. Yeah. The team was the team was small too. It was like maybe single digits at the time. But I, I said like we're gonna no longer pursue rails. I mean, because we're just playing catch up. I knew I wanted Docker to be. I knew Doc, I wanted Docker to be a leader in a technology space, but it was coming around at the wrong time for rails. Like we'd have, we, we were literally two streets away from ThoughtBot. And ThoughtBot was probably one of the largest rails consultancies in the world at the time. I can't think of another one that was larger. I think they were still around that time. They were probably what their numbers are now, like around 100 people. It was crazy because the only way to really compete, I can't compete on expertise or reputation in Rails. I have to, have to compete on price, which is never where you want to be. That's part of the reason why I went towards Ember. I put a lot of trust in Yehuda coming from the Rails core team, you know, the, the Ruby world. Um, I saw him speak in Boston on, it was before he even announced the name of Ember. He was working for a company called Strobe, whose whole business model, I think, was around their framework called Sprout Core. And Sprout Core was, from what I recall, a manifestation of the uh, Cocoa framework out of Apple. And so Strobe had some former, app, former Apple people. They were working with Apple. And Sprout Core was like a web-based version of Cocoa. And so all the kind of lessons on how to build GUIs on Mac OS were kind of put into this framework. And I think iCloud, if you go to iCloud.com, it's still built on Sprout Core. And so Yehuda was brought in to kind of create Sprout Core 2.0. And I don't know the reason why, maybe because he saw an opportunity, but he decided to fork it instead and create what at the time he was calling Amber with an A. But I think that there was another framework of technology called Amber. And so he went with Amber. So we, we went towards Amber. 
started to build up uh, a reputation in that space. I was butting heads with the Ember Core team quite a bit on a bunch of stuff. So I, I was never going to be kind of on the inside baseball track. Were they technical disagreements or? I think yeah, really around marketing, like messaging. Like the Ember Core team had a bad reputation early on, on kind of selling you on where they want to be. And it would take them years to get there. And so by the time that they get there, it was just like, you know, you've heard about this technology for a while now and it wasn't exciting anymore. And I had this moment where I saw when React Native was released, the way they released it was they didn't tell anybody that it was coming out. And it was the React conference, one that Facebook ran or runs, the official one. They announced it. It was like blew the doors off everybody. And I think that's like that's the way that Apple releases products too. And I, I understand Ember's, the core team's kind of desire to bring in a lot of ideas, a lot of concepts and perspectives on how the technology should be built because then they have a consensus on, okay, this is the best way to do it. But that takes a lot of time. That's like, you know, it's designed by committee to a certain extent. It's their framework, it's their technology. They can do it as they like. But I, I really think that, that the adoption of Ember was just decimated because of how they presented ideas in the direction they want to take it. You know, they would get up there during their keynote speak and say, you know, we have the original templating engine. Oh, uh, handlebars? Well, it was handlebars, but they were going to, I think it was called, eight, well, I think the, mm -hmm. the new rendering engine at the time was HTML bars. Okay. And it was revolutionary, but it just took too long to come out. And so by the time it came out, other frameworks had surpassed it, right? And so it's difficult to work on adoption around those constraints. I guess in like a direct comparison, you know, you feel very strongly about uh, Elixir adoption, obviously, since you're here and you asked to be here to talk about it. What are some things that you think that Elixir might be doing better? Or are there things that you think you're seeing the same mistakes or, you know, things that are happening that are working? I can answer that in a couple different ways. My personal experience, and then I ran the Elixir ecosystem survey. And so part of the purpose of that survey was to solicit answers to those very questions. And so I have some data from that survey. The data is available, so anyone can take a look at it, but it's in a Postgres data dump file. So it's not very user-friendly at the moment. But anyway, I, I'm happy to share all that stuff. We were literally just talking about that before the call. That's so funny. I'm not good at data visualization. And thankfully, Hugo, uh, formerly at Platformer Tech, was the one that took it upon himself to convert the data. So it was on Typeform. And the data dump from Typeform was horrible. It was a CSV file that had every answer was its own column. It, well, not every question, like there were multiple choice answers. And so every multiple choice answer, every answer in a multiple choice had its own column. Like the data model that it dumped out was, I mean, it was only usable in the sense that eventually Hugo was able to get it over to a, you know, a Postgres data model. But now that we're there, we're hoping for this year that we can build a live view application around that for the actual survey. And then when we're done, press a button and then -da, data visualization. That'd be great. My own personal take on Elixir, on why I really like it and the strengths that are there, things that help with adoption are number one, that I think it starts and stops with Jose. Like Jose is... As far as, I mean, this is my fourth kind of technology community I've been in at this point. And I think that he is probably the best leader that I, like technology leader that I've seen. Like 
DHH was, um, he's a very, you know, good technology leader it. as well. But he, he, <laughs> You're no, 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 I'm just saying like <laughs> DHH is very good at marketing. Like he, he can go out and like sell anything. Yeah. And so I think that's a really important thing that's really unique. Like no one else has that. So it's not a knock on Jose about that. It's just that it, it's difficult to go out and compete with that type of ability. He's a huge personality. Yeah, yeah. I remember early on in rails like he was getting interviews on tv shows and stuff talking about it it was just so big professional race car driver and photographer and he's done pretty well in the race car world from what i understand like oh yeah he didn't he drive lamont or something crazy like that i thought he drove lamont or something insane like really good i don't know yeah no i don't follow it too much but i i know that he's legitimate race car driver he's pretty legit like jose's really good about handing off responsibility and that that's something that i want to contrast with like the, the thing that i had problems with in the ember space like, whereas the Ember core team wanted to own everything because they felt that they needed to kind of control the messaging, control the technology. Jose is more about like, I don't have time to do this. All right, I don't want to do this. You should do it. Not to say that he's just like trying to throw things off, but he, you know, he doesn't need to, to own everything. He, I, I think Jose is starting to mentor people and trying to bring them up to, you know, his level and now hopefully creating more Jose's. But I think the joke for a while was there must be multiple Jose's because he's just like, so prolific and how quickly he can answer like he's super active in github super active across all these projects he cloned himself that's what you're saying yeah exactly he he cloned himself but it may that's hopefully what he's kind of you know finding he's finding someone that is is passionate about a particular sector of literature that he wants to see improved and he's working with them in order to guide them on where it should be and i i think that's incredible powerful thing now whether that helps Elixir's adoption or not, yes, I think that's that's going to be helpful. But is it going to be helpful in time is the big question. Like technology generally has, in my mind, a limit on how easy it will be to get other people to buy into it. Like software engineers, especially like the new and shiny thing. And so if the new and shiny thing has solutions to all the problems right away, they're going to gravitate towards it. Or... If the new and shiny thing is backed by a Facebook or a Google or a Microsoft, like they they tend to go with the name sometimes. I actually prefer the opposite. I like technologies that are not backed by these big companies. They're ones that I can contribute back to, right? I don't have to go through a deliberation process by determining whether or not this feature request is in Microsoft's best interest. Yeah, I was listening to Matt Mullenweg talk about this, that like at the end of the day, open source is going to win every market. But I don't really believe that, but who am I? Um, not, not on, on mobile. mobile. <laughs> it's not, yeah, not on, on mobile. mobile. Not on an operating system. Like it, it makes it more accessible is what you're kind of saying here. I don't know what Mullenweg was saying. What I'm saying is I just don't think that, like I don't think that bears fruit. Like operating systems have not converged toward Linux. The whole the whole word of win I have a problem with because it's binary, right? Like either you you win or you lose. I don't think that open source is going to win or lose. It's going to be an important aspect of software development, right? It's you know there's going to be the 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 closed systems of iOS and Android, whatever else comes out in the future that are going to be huge markets, and then there's going to be the web, which for the most part, unless WebAssembly somehow kind of changes this, but um, you know, remain open source. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about WebAssembly. Yeah, yeah, we can get into that in a bit. But I want to tie back to this narrative of Dockyard and especially, like, I want to hear the story. Like, who brought up Elixir at Dockyard? It was me. It was you. To go back a bit, I had first heard about Elixir because Jose was on the Rails core team. 
and I was paying very a lot of attention to Rails, but I, I did not go out and try it. I think actually the the version that he had released, actually I don't know if he releases for me. It was very early on. It was like you know very early Elixir, and he's doing this. I have to credit a uh, friend of mine who I haven't spoken to in a while, only because he moved away, Johnny Barsaqua. I'm good friends with Johnny. I love Johnny. Yeah, yeah. John, Johnny's awesome. He's doing Go now, I believe. Right? He's on. Yeah. So now involved with Go. So he used to live up. In, yep, he used to live up here in Boston, and I actually I don't remember if it was a conference. I used to run these retreats called Rails Camp, and he came to a few of those. And I I don't recall if it was at a Rails Camp or a conference, but he's the one that he was playing around with Elixir, and I, I respect Johnny's opinion on technology, and so that kind of got me to start poking around in it. And I don't remember what the delta was between that and when Dave released the first version of the Prague Prog book, but I went through the Prague Prog book in probably a week and I came in and I was like, all right, we need to start doing this. Like there's, this is legitimate. I had like other things that added into that over time. Like I always had a lot of respect for Erlang. I, when I worked down in DC, one of my coworkers was really into Erlang. Like he really liked it, but I just could not wrap my mind around the prolog syntax. Like I just started every statement ends with a period, like what's going on here. So when I started to push Elixir at Dockyard, I don't think Phoenix is 1.0 yet. It was definitely pre 1.0. It was coming up on 1.0. And what I was finding to my delight was that it was easy to transition Rails engineers over to Phoenix. Like there's a lot of, especially when the old kind of application layout was, like Chris copied the the Rails uh, project layouts. I think it was, was that like 1.3 of Phoenix or something that that changed because it was so similar. It was an easy transition, and I bought the Prague Prog book for a lot of people. The company bought the digital version and had pretty much the entire Rails team within a month over converted over to Phoenix. You mean you taught them? Like you could have you have clients, right? Like you've got like stuff that's going on that you're maintaining. Yeah, we had clients, so it, it's easy to say like. Oh, Brian knows what he's doing after the fact because Dockyard's done well. But at the time, I was probably breaking every single like business rule in existence because I was pretty much taking an existing company that was doing okay at the time. I think we were probably like seven to eight million dollar revenue annually at the time. And I was like, all right, you know, let's sink this ship and head off in a new direction because I like this other technology. It was an easy transition because Phoenix worked out better as an API backend for Ember than Rails did. For a single page application or framework, especially when you get into page transitions, if your application response time was faster, shorter, then you know the application experience was better. So we were seeing that. It was then a matter of, okay, now we have to go and convince clients to do this. I mean, my marketing path was always in blogging, content generation. And so I, I think I... Actually, I don't remember if I did this for Ember or if it was for Elixir. Maybe I did it for both. But I think I spent a month where I, I blogged every single day about different things I was kind of learning or discovering or thoughts I had in Elixir. Um, and so the nice thing is that when a, when a technology community is starting to get start to hit the ground, um, which where Elixir was at the time, you don't have to do a lot to get a lot of attention. This was probably 2014 or so. Yeah, I have to look back. I used to write these annual reviews of Dockyard, lessons learned, like here's what happened this year type of blog posts that were pretty lengthy and sometimes not great for me to go back and read years later because there were just really 
obvious things that I could have done differently, but it was good to reflect upon these things. And I, I think in one of them, I declared that Dockyard was no longer a Rails consultancy and Docker is now going to be a lecture consultancy. And there was a running joke for a while that whatever new technology came out, like Docker was now that type of consultancy. And so for a while, there was a time when almost every single month there was a new JavaScript framework being announced on Hacker News. And so I would always tweet out from the Docker account, Docker is now an X consultancy, you know, just as a stupid meme. But I was legitimately saying that Docker is moving over to being a Lixer consultancy. And the timing of that worked out for us. I was unaware of this, but Chris McCord had left the consultancy he was at, and he was, I think, just doing training in Phoenix. And so he was kind of traveling around the country and doing Phoenix training or Elixir training in general and trying to get Phoenix to 1.0. And somebody brought to my attention that he was either available or maybe even looking for a position. And so I'm not above saying this, but I think that part of growing a consultancy is sometimes buying legitimacy. And so we went out and I made a deal with Chris and how that relationship could work. You know, what restrictions Dockyard had upon the growth and features that go into the Phoenix. And just so everyone knows, like Dockyard has no say on what goes into Phoenix. Like I, I can re- make recommendations to Chris on certain things and say, hey, it'd be nice if we had this, but Dockyard has no way of saying this must happen in Phoenix. And that was part of the contract that Chris has with Dockyard. And that was really important to him. And I, as a software engineer, I understand his reason for that. Dockyard has no IP claim upon Phoenix. And so we were essentially just funding Chris's effort to work independent on Phoenix. And that's what he was looking for. So the relationship worked out. And when Chris came to Dockyard, I mean, whatever visibility Dockyard had in the Elixir space just went like tenfold, a hundredfold, whatever it is. Because it's, you know, of course, the creator of one of the reasons everyone is interested in Elixir is at this company. I would like to think that in most cases, if, if a company is thinking about hiring a consultancy, that Docker is part of those conversations. And that's really what we're looking to do. So I guess fast forwarding to today, you know, you talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but what are your like strong opinions on how companies could go about adopting Elixir today? Because that is what we're hoping. I'll go into what, what came out of the survey and what we've seen selling Elixir into spaces is that you're dealing with two types of clients sometimes. Clients that are looking to create something from scratch or clients that are looking to rebuild what they currently have. And in both cases, they may be looking to, okay, what's on the horizon? What's the new technology that can really offer a benefit that what we're currently doing is not offering? In order to have that conversation with those clients, you have to justify that the technology that you're suggesting that they build this in offers an order of magnitude improvement over what they're currently doing. Because they have a, an existing competency, like a team in whatever their current platform and technology is. They know where the rough spots are. They know how to get that technology out the door. And like early on, like Phoenix's and Elixir's value prop was comparing it to Rails. Like, oh, we have microsecond response times. And I think that was from an engineer's perspective, that was compelling. Because like, wow, that's really fast. And I'm not going to have to really worry about you know, some scalability issues down the line. But from a business stakeholders and a company, that's not really a compelling argument. And so the, the, the compelling arguments are really going to be around capabilities. Does Elixir have all the capabilities in its ecosystem that the current technology that we're on or we're, we're familiar with can do? 
yes, it has fast response times, but if we want to implement this type of functionality, are we going to be hitting roadblocks because we have to build this from scratch? Hiring is probably the biggest problem that I saw reflected in the survey. So they're definitely in the double digit responses going down the, the like why we didn't adopt Elixir path that uh, articulated that didn't want to implement the technology that they wouldn't be able to go and hire people for. And this is kind of a chicken or egg problem, unfortunately, in, in technology spaces sometimes. And so I think that any efforts that are underway in order to further education in Elixir and Phoenix and, and NERVs and everything else are really important. Whatever type of red flags people are seeing towards education or learning Elixir have to be you know, dealt with. So one of the biggest things that I've seen that people like come like, all right, full stop. Like, I don't know if I can learn Elixir is they fear the term functional programming. And they, they come from an imperative programming or object-oriented programming mindset. And they have this preconceived notion that functional programming is the kind of landscape of the intellectuals, the, the academics. And in my experience, that's simply not true. Yes, there, I think it attracts a lot of those people, but it is, I actually think, easier to learn functional programming than it is object-oriented programming. I, I think like you know, some of the concepts that are out there around OOP made it seductive. And especially at the time when OOP started taking off, because you had like all sorts of problems around like memory restriction on machine. And so you can't really do mem copy on every single function call and expect it to, you know, play well with you know a few like tens of megabytes of RAM or hundreds of megabytes of RAM. That's no longer an issue. And so, you know, when you had reference by memory on an object-oriented programming, that that was a big reason why it took off. And some of the concepts around like, okay, you know, we can compare real world things over to object oriented program. Like we have a dog model and we have a dog, like a cat model. They both inherit from the animal class. And, and like th those type of things, I don't know if we can make direct comparisons with gen servers and all that in, in Elixir, but I, I think that there needs to be some boogeyman like killing of the functional programming fear that exists that's out there object-oriented programming has this allure of that that it's intuitive but in fact functional programming is more intuitive because it's more accurately resembles the underlying primitives of what's happening on the machine like we try to anthropomorphize it by making object-oriented i was just gonna make a comment about this this hiring thing that we do see it a lot and obviously you saw it in your survey but we've also seen a number of people on the show this season saying that hiring in Elixir gave them a, a competitive advantage in that they were hiring like really great engineers, not necessarily because they were programming in Elixir, but because their passion for programming was just so unique because they wanted to program in Elixir. So it's interesting to see that. I tell people that if they're willing to hire right now in Elixir and they're willing to put in the work to find people, they're going to find excellent people. The issue though is that most of the Elixir community is very heavily weighted towards senior. And sometimes engineering teams don't have the budget to hire all senior engineers. Like, and there's not even sometimes the work that are necessitates senior engineers. So there needs to be more kind of seeding the ground with junior engineers, mid-level engineers. And I think in our current pandemic world, that's even more difficult. Like one thing that Docker has always struggled with is how early on Docker had a good reputation for bringing on juniors, mentoring them, getting them leveled up. But since the company went remote in 2016, we made an active decision to no longer pursue and train juniors just because we didn't have a good way to go about doing that in a remote environment. 
Part of it is a trust issue. I think that we would be more willing to trust senior engineers in a remote environment than junior engineers. It kind of stopped at our QBR meetings where we just said, okay, you know, we, we don't have a good solution for this yet. Let's punt on it. Let's punt on it. But I, I think that there needs to be like a lot of stuff that Bruce Tate is doing right now with Grox IO. I think, you know, his education, I guess you'd call it a platform or a product at this point. I think that's really important, but getting more people at those entry levels kind of interesting. But I mean, it's also, like I said, chicken or egg. The reason sometimes those people go, you know, get into it at a junior level is because their company move over to Elixir. And so, you know, it's slowly trending in the right direction. Whether or not it's trending in the right direction at the right speed is debatable. But I think beyond just hiring, there's also the, the issue of the missing pieces in Elixir land. I mean, we can we can talk about this from like a trend perspective. And I think the trend in software engineering over the past couple of years has been around strong types, type systems and programming languages. And if Jose is listening, he's going to probably shaking his fist because I always bring up type systems and programming languages and he immediately emails me and says, we're working on it. We're working on it. And like, I know, I just, I bring it up because it's on my mind. I don't want to undermine the core team's efforts, but just that lacking limits some of the tooling around the language. I'm so curious if whether or not that trend towards static typing is going to be a persistent. Well, I mean, there's something to be said that technology trends are, they, they come and go, right? But I, I think that with static typing, then you get static analysis. So you have the ability for your editor to be smarter about how you're writing your applications. And it allows for, I think, less mistakes to be made in the long run. Like, like when, when JavaScript community moved over to TypeScript, there was a huge performance boost that they saw because less time was spent going in, like having to squash these esoteric bugs that were coming up because the type system, they were able to bubble those to the surface during the initial programming of it. From a value perspective, that that aspect, I think, is very valuable. I, I do think that, yes, you're right, that trends come and go in technology. And so just to say we want a type system just because everyone else has one is not a good reason for it. This is, the, I think, maybe the fundamental crux of the question, which is, if it's an optional type system, is it a real type system? You're never going to have a full type system in Elixir because you can't go all the way down into the Erlang on it, right? I mean, the best you can hope for is what Gleam has, which is it's compile time in the Gleam code type system. Where, where something like Elm has done very well is really leaned into their type system, into all aspects of it. So like if you were to release a Elm package, I believe it will actually ensure that your your version bump adheres to the contracts that you've set out in the types. So like if you do like a minor version bump, it's going to actually run through and do a static analysis on, on the package to ensure that like, okay, yes, this is a legitimate minor bump. That's not going to break backwards compatibility. And I, I think those type of things are are helpful. Outside of type system, there are machine learning type areas that Elixir is not in. Just pure number crunching that I think that Erlang in general has a bad reputation for that. I know that there's efforts in a way to, to deal with that. There are higher level concerns. So like a CMS built in Elixir or Phoenix that people look to be integrating. I saw in the, the survey results, authentication. And so I know that there's the Phoenix GenAuthn, whatever they're calling it now, the task. But this brings me to a good point, something I want to call out that I am super guilty of. And I, I think that the Elixir community needs to stop doing this. So I have seen, and I have done this several times that Someone will ask, like, how do I do X in Elixir? They're coming from Ruby. They're coming from somewhere else. 
and they're used to just dropping in a package and they configure the package and it does what they need. And then, you know, in Elixir, they, they come to try to do that. And someone says, or I mean, there's record of me saying it, you don't need a package. Elixir is easy enough to just write it from scratch. I think that there is absolutely some value to that at a certain level, but there's people coming from a particular experience and background that that is just like a full stop for them. Say it louder for the people in the back, Brian, that we need to make the thing accessible to, to every level of development. I also have a hot take on how to make the, the Slack a little more accessible. I was talking to Justice the other day. I really think we need to allow for custom emojis. I know I'm very biased in this, but the Elixir Lang Slack does not allow for custom emojis. And I just think it like completely voids it of personality. It's so hard for me to communicate with people in there. And I don't talk in there because there are no emojis. I know that's probably just a me thing. But anyways. The idea of what successful adoption is also has to be framed correctly in elixir world so i i think it actually was this podcast it was at yeah lone star so there was like the uh it was like the speaker room and i i came in at the wrong time and i think just as you told me to speak up on this subject or something like it was talking about adoption and the the question put to me was like how does elixir beat java how does it beat that's a defeatist way to look at it because it's not going to be java like it's just not going to happen like java is too big like c is too big it's I think Ruby and Python are probably the the two most likely realistic targets in terms of like, okay, can we get up to this level? Do I even jump on some client calls with Dockyard still now and then? And if it's a client doing something particularly interesting, I ask them to write use case, like case studies on what they've done. Jose started to publish some on ElixirLang, which is great. But we need more. We need more companies out there talking about their success stories with Elixir. I gave a talk in New Orleans. Brian was running that conference. And I think it was on this topic, uh, adoption of Elixir. And I, I put up some quotes from companies. And I, I was trying to get kind of like backgrounds. And I, I, I found two examples of companies that did not want to talk about using Elixir because they thought it was so much of a competitive advantage that they didn't want their competitors to know that they were using Elixir. And at, at the time, I was like, wow, that's, so, that's such a compelling data point. But the more I thought about it, the more it just annoyed me. I mean, they had this, that's not going to sink their company. It's not going to, you know, it, it, their, their company. But that's they're, how they think in the Valley. I know, know, I know, I know. They've been overtaken by that, like, mentality. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the type of companies we probably need going out and saying, like, you know, we had this major success story with Elixir. We had this major success story with, with Phoenix. And we're just not getting it on, on a certain level. If you're listening to this podcast and your company has not written a case study yet, don't even worry about whether or not you think that it's going to be this groundbreaking case study. Just go out and add to the conversation. That, that's what we need. We need more. We need more. Because I, I, I'm very thankful for the work that Bleacher Report has done on popularizing uh, Phoenix and Elixir, but we can't keep telling that same Bleach Report story over and over again. Because at some point, those out there that have heard it before that haven't adopted Elixir, they're they call us out and say, like, you know, okay, that that story is five years old at this point. You know, what, what's happened since then? We do a ton of case studies at Smart Logic, and so I wanted to give Rose the chance to ping us with any. I'm really curious. It's been six or so months since you presented the survey, and I was wondering if there are any metrics you've seen that have changed in that time. And maybe additionally, what was something that you were really surprised about when you saw that metric? It could be separate. We haven't gathered any more data, so I can't say whether or not the metrics have changed. 
Jose has been teasing something on Twitter for a little bit now. He's going to present it at Lambda Days in February. So if you want to know what Jose is working on, go sign up to watch Lambda Days in February and watch Jose's talk. I think you, it's going to blow your mind. And it does address one of my concerns around adoption in Elixir. And that's the only thing I can say concretely that I think that has moved. I won't be able to answer that question really until we run the next survey to see like how the whether the chains have moved back and forth one way or the other. I mean, the, the area that I think surprised me, I knew it was going to be bad, but it was really bad, was the um, you know diversity answers in Elixir. 2%, I think, for the women in Elixir, but I don't remember about the other metrics. It wasn't good. The good thing that has come from that, and I don't know if she wants me to, to announce her name or not, so I won't, but someone has reached out to me that is passionate about this part of it, and so she wants to get involved more. I, I will reiterate some of what I said during the presenting of the data. I can't help but think that the data is skewed a bit in the sense that my ability to outreach in certain communities is limited by who I am and what I am. And so I made efforts to reach out to Elixir Bridge, but from what I can understand, they're not in existence anymore. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I, I mean, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I, I didn't get any response from Elixir Bridge. I reached out to the the person that I believed was running Elixir Bridge and no response. And so I, I it was difficult for me to kind of get this into the, the survey, into the hands of those that could probably have boosted those numbers a bit. But I also think it's important not to play a numbers game with the survey, right? It's not like you know, the goal isn't, isn't to increase the survey numbers or to pad those numbers. The goal is to get accurate representation of what, what the currently is. The survey should be used as to either track success or failure in that space. But in order for us to do that accurately, we need accurate numbers. And so while I, I know that you know, gender diversity in Elixir is not great, I hope that it's not as bad as the survey reflects. Maybe it is. But um, maybe after this next one, we'll see something that, you know, maybe it's going to be the same. I don't know. But I, I know that it's an area that, not, not that the responses need to be improved, just the outreach and adoption in that space needs to be improved. I have to ask you about Lumen. I'm curious, you know, if you could quickly just, you know, the elevator pitch, but more importantly, like, I want to know about the status of when am I going to be using Lumen? Okay, so so for those that may not be aware, I'll just give the pitch on what Lumen is. Lumen is, it compiles Erlang bytecode and VM into WebAssembly. It will allow us to run fully compiled, fully run VM-protected processes in the browser. Why do we want this? There's a couple of reasons. Number one, I really don't like writing JavaScript. <laughs> I didn't even bother to go learn TypeScript. I just I just don't want to do it. After doing, doing Elixir for a number of years, I see the, the massive productivity boost in functional programming, not having to go through the call stack to find some crazy function that was, you know, renamed somewhere along the way that I think when you when you want to like hack something together in JavaScript, it's fine. And I'm really impressed with how much people have been able to like take how far a language that was written in a week has been taken over the years, but just the developer experience in JavaScript, I don't like. I also think that there is some value to the actor model when you start to think about how does it, how can you use it to build out graphical user interfaces, which is basically what the web is. So my, my, my part of the keynote at ElixirConf a year and a half ago kind of pontificated like, okay, what if we can map the supervisor tree against the DOM tree? 
And I've thought about that a bit more and that idea has evolved and it's still a, you know, what if it's not actualized yet. But I, I think that there's, especially when you start to get into the idea that every DOM node can be linked back to a, a process in a uh, Elixir application, then you can basically manage client-side events as messages being passed up in a normal uh, gen server. So then you, you'll be able to hopefully manage and build out applications. It, it, I'm trying to kind of sell people on this and I don't even know if I'm sold on it yet because I still have to, we have to get Lumen to the point where we can build it to determine whether or not this actually has value. The other side of Lumen is that it's going to conform to the WASI spec. And if you're unfamiliar with the WASI spec, it is a uh, subcommittee on the WebAssembly specification that allows you to basically, anything that you can compile into WebAssembly can be compiled into WASI. The whole point is to be able to compile into WASI, which is to be run on an operating system command line. So like one of the big limiting factors of the NERVS project right now is that you have to compile the entire Erlang VM and it has to run on these Raspberry Pis. So uh, that really limits NERVS as a technology into the IoT space because you have vast majority of IoT companies that are working on like one to two megabytes of memory for their IoT hardware. And NERVS right away, I think it's compile is what, 10 megabytes or something like that. Don't quote me on the number, but I know that it's bigger than what some of these IoT companies are comfortable with. So if we can get Lumen to actually compile to a footprint, like our, I think we're currently around like 250K. If you just compile it without any application code, it's around a quarter of a megabyte. And that's without like major optimizations, co compilation optimizations that I know that Paul wants to work on. We're well within that area that it'll be able to be used as a viable IoT compilation target. That seems like completely unrelated. It is unrelated. How far am I from writing an app without JavaScript in Elixir? Yeah, so so that's going to come last. So point one is that command line compilation, and that's currently here. That in the sense that you can create little command line apps right now with Lumen. The next is the WASI compilation, and that is WebAssembly is coming last only because we're really waiting on certain things to move forward in the WebAssembly specification. So we're blocked on certain things. We have workarounds, but my concern is that the workarounds are not going to give us the application experience and runtime experience that we want. So for example, processes, like the whole value of the beam is that you're supposed to have these super cheap processes that start really fast, that are tiny in scope, each have their own garbage collection, and then they go away instantly. If Paul or Luke or Hans are listening to this, they're probably saying, oh, that's not correct, that's correct. But I know that there's there's an issue with that currently in the sense that the browser vendors want to leverage their own threading system for it. The browser, the JavaScript will run in the, green, in the main thread, and then they have, they're like, oh, we already have processes. They're called web workers. No, like, they, these are really large and you can't instantiate them as like the same way. So we can't have a one-to-one -one for, for Erlang processes over to web workers. The, thing that's happening right now is that I think that we can create a pool of potential processes per web worker and distribute them, but there's uh, some message passing limitations. So all I have to say, there, progress is still being made. We have weekly standups. We publish the videos of all of our standups every single week. There's a Lumen Twitter account, Get Lumen. You can follow the progress as it happens, but progress has been slower than we would like, primarily due to this past year. Paul left Dockyard at the beginning of the year. He went to another company and he's been, I think, 20% time on Lumen. 
Luke and Hans have been somewhat, I, I would say below 20% time on Lumen because I know that there are times that they were fully billable at Dockyard. And so it's it's really a matter of having the, the funding and the time. Like 20% time is nice to have, but at the same time, if you get, if you get to work for one full week on Lumen, that's worth five weeks of 20% time. Yeah, no, every developer knows exactly what you're talking about in terms of getting like real blocks of heads, heads down time. Before we go, I just want to ask one closeout question because so much of this conversation has been about, been about language capabilities. I mean, Lumen is about expanding language capabilities. Adoption is largely bottlenecked by language capabilities. You know, I think you mentioned that language capabilities are the difference between us beating a language like Python, for example, where we're not, we don't have the capability to do the matrix computation, that kind of thing that we would need to do. I want you to plug Jason's project too, if you get the chance, but like, I'm curious, like, what do you think is like the, if there was a low hanging fruit that you're not personally working on, like at Lumen, what is it? And like, well, how can people kind of contribute to the community and help with making Elixir adoptable? I think if someone were to do a live view based CMS, that's an amazing answer. That's like the best answer I think I've ever gotten to this question about like, how can people contribute? That's amazing. I want to okay. do it. I don't have the time to do it. I want doctor to do it. Doctor doesn't have the time to do it. I want, I want a live view based CMS. That's amazing. I, I can't believe no one said those words in that combination yet. <laughs> uh, the concision is incredible. Well, we'd like to give you the, the floor for the last minute or so just to plug anything that you want for the audience, any asks for the audience, uh, you know, where people can find you if you want to be found. If not, you know, the time is yours. So. I don't want to be found. I routinely delete all my social media. <laughs> I have a fun job that will delete all my tweets every so often. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I've got one of those in my head. <laughs> goes off every other week or so. I take joy in closing social media accounts that I discovered that I opened a while, a while ago. So I, I have a Facebook account, but I only have it open. I don't have any friends on it. And I, I bought a Jeep Wrangler last year. And so I am a member of the local Jeep Wrangler social group. And I, it drives me crazy that all these groups are using Facebook for it. I wish they would use Discuss or something like that. I can only connect with some of these people through that Facebook account. So unfortunately. Wow. Uh, what about Slack? If somebody were to reach out to you there. I'm on Slack. Yeah. So B Carterella. I mean, anywhere, if you type in whatever slash B Carterella, that's usually where I probably shouldn't tell people that because they may try to get new ones up here or something. I mean, that's where I am. I'm B Carterella on Slack. I'm on there periodically. People can DM me. I respond generally. I usually have my Slack open. Wow, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're really uh, a great person to look up to in the community and someone I'm glad to know. And we're really glad to have you in the community contributing so much. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Brian Cardarella, and my co-host, Sunday Mint, and my producer, Rose Burt. And once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast. Here at Smart Logic, we're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps in Elixir, Rails, and React. Infrastructure projects using Kubernetes and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on the socials. So add us on all of those and join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more on adopting Elixir.